Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are so glad you're with us. We're a Bible-based church from Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Him. In this life, we will have troubles, but on occasion, we will also face opposition. In the fourth chapter of Acts, we see the disciples experiencing opposition from the same people who crucified Jesus. Instead of running away or hiding, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and boldly proclaims the resurrection. In this message, we'll discover how we should respond to opposition as we learn from their example. With that, let's turn over to Pastor Nathan with part eight of his Acts series, In Spite of Opposition. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) Hey, uh, great to be with you again today. Thanks for being here. We are in week eight. Can you believe it? Week eight of our study in the book of Acts, and we're just entering the fourth chapter. Uh, there's a bunch of chapters, so we're definitely not getting through the entire book, but I hope that so far it's been helpful. We're, we're looking at this book called Acts, which has the history of the early church, and it tells us what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven, and as his church began uh, to be formed, we see uh, God doing incredible things. And so it's a, it's a, it's a great, uh, great book, and there's so much here for us to discover. Let me just give you the, like, the 60-second recap of the book. Essentially, in the opening chapter, Jesus tells a disciple, I'm going to heaven, he ascends, and before he goes, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. And they do that. They wait in Jerusalem. They replace Judas. They wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descends on them. They speak in other tongues. There's a huge crowd gathers to see what all the commotion is about. And Peter steps up and preaches his first sermon. It goes something like this. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Turn from your wicked ways. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. So he just says this sermon. And 3,000 people are added to the church. And in the end of the second chapter, we see uh, all of these new believers in Jesus, and they're growing in faith, they're growing in generosity, they're sharing what they have with each other, they're praying daily in the temple, they're meeting in homes, it's like this vibrant, growing church. In chapter 3, Peter and John are headed to the temple to meet other followers of Jesus to pray, and on their way there, the Holy Spirit leads Peter and John to look at this man who was born without the use of his legs. I mean, this guy, everyone in Jerusalem would have known this guy sitting at the gate, beautiful by the temple without the use of his legs. And they look at him and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he does this incredible thing. He reaches down and starts pulling on this guy. And this guy is pushing somehow and bam, he's healed. His strength comes into his legs. There's a creative miracle and he's singing and dancing and jumping. And he follows them into the temple courts where again, a huge crowd is gathering. People know this man, they've seen him for years, and all of a sudden this man is is healed. And their minds are blown, and they're asking, how did this happen? And once again, Peter steps up and starts to preach, and he says, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. You rejected Jesus, God glorified and honored Jesus. Because of faith in the name of Jesus, this man has new legs. And if you have faith in Jesus, you can have a new heart. Forgiveness. You can be sons and daughters of God. And this is the, this is the sermon. This is the sermon that he is, uh, this is the sermon that he's preaching. So really up until the first three chapters of Acts, everything is what I call up and to the right. Everything's going great. Would you agree? And this is how you'd want your church to get started. I mean, thousands of people coming to faith, healings, miracles, crowds. I mean, this is wonderful. And today, as we turn into the fourth chapter and begin in verse one, We're going to see that things are going to begin to look a little different for the apostles and for the early church. Let's take a look at it. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 1 or 4, verse 1. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, so Peter and John are still preaching. The priests, these have been like the pastors and the church staff at the temple, you know, important people. And the captain of the temple, this would be like their security, their police. 
And then the Sadducees, which were a religious sect that were very wealthy and very politically powerful. So this would be like your mayor, your counselors, a lot of important people here. And they come and it says they came upon them. Some translations say they laid hands on them. And usually in church when we talk about laying hands on somebody, we're like, we're praying for you. We're blessing you, brother. We're blessing you, sister. But that was not, it was like laying hands. You know, when someone really annoys you, you lay hands on them, like grab them. So they're about to be arrested. This is what's happening. Okay, these leaders come and they arrest them. And here's why it says in the next passage, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So the leaders of the temple, the political leaders, they did not like what Peter and John were saying. So in the middle of the sermon, they come in, they grab them, and they're going to arrest them. So our theme for today, you guys are excited about this? Our theme for the today is this, opposition. Can we all say that together? Opposition. Who here has faced some opposition in their life? Okay, I got a bunch of hands going up. If you have, and I assure you, you will, okay, it's, it's, it's not our favorite subject. Uh, opposition is something that, um, that, that many of us will experience. And, and the title of my message today, let me introduce that. Uh, the title of my message today is actually, In Spite of Opposition, okay? So what we're going to see is what God can do in spite of those that come against us, in spite of the, the things that we experience, God can be at work. And so that's kind of the theme. But before we get too much into this opposition, I need to distinguish the difference between opposition and trouble. Okay? Now, they're, they're kind of the same thing, but trouble is a much broader category. You, you with me? Uh, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. And that means that in life, things will not always go the way you hope. They will not always go the way you expect. There will be some surprises. Not great surprises, okay? Uh, so there will be trouble in this life. We know this. Uh, Jesus predicted it, so we shouldn't be surprised. Now, there's different kinds of trouble. The first kind of trouble that often comes to mind is what I call self-inflicted trouble. Like, oh, I couldn't sleep last night. It's like, Oh, I'm so sorry for you. What did you eat? Well, I had a big bag of chocolate almonds and a bag of chip and a couple cans of Coke. It's like, okay, I don't feel sorry for you. Okay, that is a direct relation to your decisions. And sometimes we get into financial trouble, relationship. Let's be honest. Most of our relationship troubles are self-inflicted. Okay, so we, we do that. And then once we move past our own failings, we have the, the failings and trouble that's caused because of people around us. This is where you can say amen, right? So, I mean, if your kid throws a baseball through your neighbor's window, you have to pay for it. You have just inherited this trouble. So your spouse can cause you trouble. Your boss can make a decision with the company that actually ends up with you being laid off. And that's their decision brings you trouble. And then, of course, you have, you know, leaders, no political leaders. They make decisions that will either bless or curse people. And sometimes their decisions bring trouble. So there's all of that. And then on top of that, we have all the trouble that exists because we live in a fallen world. Your body gets sick. You're driving down the road and your engine blows up. And you did all the maintenance, all the schedule. You ticked all the boxes and your car broke. These, these things happen. Life happens. So we have trouble. But what we're talking today is not trouble in general. What we're actually talking about is opposition. And opposition is, is a kind of trouble that has an active agent behind it. Okay, it's the kind of trouble that's caused by someone or something that is acting against. So you're trying to do something good and someone's trying to stop you. You're trying to get a promotion and they're trying to discredit you. That's opposition. That's different than normal trouble. You with me? We're talking about opposition today because what we're going to discover is that the disciples and the early church are now going to face severe opposition. Okay, they're going to face opposite. They're trying to move the kingdom of God and the message of Jesus forward. And there are people 
that are trying to do everything in their power to stop it. That's called opposition. Now, this is the first time the disciples are going to face opposition, although uh, they spent three and a half years with Jesus, and they watched him face it all the time. Everywhere Jesus went, people were trying to discredit him, trap him in his words, get him arrested, get him killed. They eventually succeeded in having him killed. But he was constantly facing opposition, and the disciples were just kind of watching. Huh, let's, let's see how Jesus handles this. And Jesus didn't handle it the way that most of us would. When people oppose us, it's like, let's go. We're ready for a fight. We're ready to win. We're ready to tear other people down. Jesus was like, just let it roll off him. And he kept going in his Father's will. Disciples are watching this, watching this. Now it's their turn. And this is the first of many, many, many moments where they are going to be opposed. A couple more things before we dive in back into the text. Um, I've noticed that trouble comes to everybody, but opposition comes to those who are trying to do something significant. If you're doing nothing, you're just sitting around watching TV, nobody's going to oppose you, except maybe your spouse. Right? They, they might oppose that. But like, you understand what I'm saying? The moment you say, I'm going to do something great, I'm going to change the world, people are going to be like, no, you're not. And I've noticed this, that often people oppose you, not because they think what you're trying to do is bad, but they actually get jealous or they feel bad, right? So if you're with a bunch of your school friends and they're all like, hey, let's go do this thing we shouldn't do. And you're the one kid, the one person that says, actually, no, we should do the right thing. They'll all oppose you, not because you're wrong. They'll oppose you because they now feel guilty. Because you're doing the right thing. And they're like, you're making us look bad. And they'll just pull you down. That's, that's human nature. That's the way it is. But then on another level, when we start talking about the things, uh, eternal things, we have to understand that there is an enemy of our souls. There is an active agent working against everything that God wants to do in this world. Do you know that? And sometimes the things that happen around us and the things that are said and the relationships, uh, things that happen, like sometimes we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling against something else. Jesus said that the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's an active agent trying to destroy. And, and I'll, I've said this to many, many times to many people. The moment you say, I'm taking my next step of faith with God, there's always opposition that comes. A few weeks ago, we had people baptized. I'm sure that in the weeks and months following their baptism, there will be thoughts, there will be things happen to them that will cause them to doubt. It is active opposition. There's an enemy. Jesus told this parable. He said, the kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out and sows seed. Maybe you know the story. And he, this, the seed gets sown on different soils. But the seed lands on the ground, and he says, immediately birds come down and snatch up the seed that was sown. And Jesus says in his explanation that that's actually Satan. He wants to steal whatever God's trying to do in your life. Satan wants to take it away. And even if that seed takes root, so that the sun will come, that'll be difficulties and hardships that'll cause you to doubt God and that what God is doing will die. And then if that still succeeds, he says there'll be thorns and thistles that grow up and weeds that choke it out. And he says that's the cares of this world, the love of money. So it's like Satan has got all the tools in his toolbox. He throws them all at you to stop whatever God is doing in your life. I'll tell you, if you want to see opposition, just make a commitment to do something for God. <laughs> Starting this week, I'm going to give this much every week to God and I'm going to honor Him with my money and the next day, your tire's going to blow. I just assure you, and I don't know whether it's the devil or what, but I'm just saying, the moment you say, hey, I'm taking my next step of faith, there will be opposition. Why? Because you're moving in the direction of God's will. And there's, there's an enemy that wants to stop you. Now, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize everything, but we do need to understand that there is, there is an enemy at work. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive into our text and uh, take a look. Let's jump into verse 3. I talked for too long there, and so uh, we'll get moving. And they arrested them. doesn't tell us where they put them. 
jail cell, a room, whatever. Uh, they actually get locked up for the night in custody until the next day for it was, it was already evening. So things are pretty bad. They are experiencing their first uh, opposition. And I love the next verse we're going to look at in just a second is verse 4. And I love that Luke put this in here. Because remember, Luke is writing this after the fact. He's documenting what happened. And he's like, let me tell you, they preaching, they got arrested, and then he's going to tell us all about the trial and what was said. But before he does that, he gives us some context. And here's what he says in verse 4. I love verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the church was 120, grew to 3,000. Now Peter's preaching. They interrupt him before the keyboard starts playing, before the altar call. He gets hauled off. Peter and John are probably sitting in the room all night going, man, I wish I could have just done the altar call. But it didn't matter because God was working in spite of opposition. And God was working and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. It's incredible. The church continues to grow. And this is my first point. Um, God is at work in spite of opposition. This is one thing we discover when we read the Bible. We discover that through all of the difficulty, through all of the opposition, God is at work. Joseph was uh, beaten and thrown in a, in, a, in a well, sold to Egyptian slaves by his own brothers. And later, if you know the story, it all comes full circle and his brothers are standing before him and he's a prince of Egypt. And he says to them, he says, you meant this all for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God was able to work even through all of this to accomplish his purposes. And so sometimes we need to be reminded when we're facing trouble. We need to be reminded when we feel opposition that God can be at work. Peter and John are sitting in their cell, not even realizing that souls have come to faith because of their sermon and because of what's coming next. So I just think it's good to be reminded. Do you believe that God can work even in your trouble and opposition? Do you believe that? Yeah, and sometimes we just need to see. I think one of the prayers we could pray is, God, help me see where you're at work right now. Because sometimes the situation looks pretty bleak. Let's be honest. And maybe the most helpful thing we could do is just see God at work in it and be like, okay, okay, God's working through this. It's terrible. I hate it. But God is working through it. And that is an extremely, extremely helpful thing for us to understand. So we continue. It says this, on the next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, they're important apparently, they're listed by name, and all those who were of the high priest and family. So everybody who's somebody, an authority, a religious leader, they're all present. I I highlighted these, Annas and Caiaphas, because this is interesting. Annas was the high priest in, in, in Jerusalem, and the Romans had moved him out of power because, for political reasons, and they had given the, the high priest who was then given to Caiaphas, who's his son-in-law, but the people of Israel still looked to Annas as their leader. Because when Jesus is betrayed and he's brought to trial, they actually don't bring him to the high priest. They bring him to the old high priest, Annas, who then, once he condemns him, sends him to Caiaphas to get the official stamp, the official Roman seal of approval, and he sends him to Pilate. So there's all these power dynamics going on, and you've got all these different groups of people, and they're going to gather them all together to put Peter and John on trial. Here's what it says in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name do you do this? So... There's no argument about whether a miracle happened. Everybody knew that a miracle had happened. But they wanted to know by what power or what name they had done this. Now, here's why. If Peter and John said, we did it by the power of some other god or deity or we by some demonic force, they could have killed them on the spot. And so the answer to this question is actually going to be really, really, really interesting. It says this in, in verse 8. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to reply to their question. 
And I, I highlighted this filled with the Holy Spirit because we talked about this a number of weeks ago. Um, I, I grew up in circles where people talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit as like this experience, right? And what's, uh, what I think is so interesting about this is that this is the second time that Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. So clearly it's not a one-time thing. It's a multiple-time thing. And, and at the end of the same chapter, they're all going to pray for boldness and they're all going to be, guess what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So people ask me, hey, Nathan, are you filled with the Spirit? I say, yes, and I'm hopefully going to be again, like tomorrow, today. Like I want, the Holy Spirit fills Peter, whatever this means, and he is now going to speak with authority to these leaders. And now this is the second point of my message here. Depend on God in spite of, when opposition comes against you, the first thing you should do is run to God and depend on him and lean on him. Um, I think That if we want to be filled with the Spirit in greater capacity, then sometimes we need to take a step of faith and do something. The moment you put yourself in a place where you depend and need God to show up, He shows up. So we need to depend on Him. It's so easy to depend on ourselves in these situations, right? To defend ourselves, to try to make it all about us. But Peter depends on God. The Holy Spirit fills him. And I wonder, in that moment, when he's being questioned, whether he was reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. Here's what Jesus said to them. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So Jesus actually told him, you're going to get arrested, you're going to stand before trial, and when you do, don't worry about a thing, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. And so Peter steps up, full of the Holy Spirit, and he uh, speaks. Here's what he says. Okay, well, here's the third point, and then we'll tell you what he says. Seek to understand in spite of opposition. And this is really important. Whenever we're experiencing opposition in our lives, we have to understand what's behind it. What's behind it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. As a a dad, because I I have four four children, I have one, well, two adults and and two uh, adolescents. And uh, I made a lot of mistakes with my first. All of us did. We we owe our firstborn children an apology. Sorry, yeah. When my, when our, when our, when our oldest son was a, was a teenager, there were times when we would lock horns, you know, and, uh, there would be, you know, I, I didn't understand that, uh, sometimes I was just dealing with hormones. Sometimes I was just dealing with a, a, a child becoming an adult, learning to, to express themselves and to push back and find their identity, all that stuff. And I would say the mistake I made was I took much of it too personally. That makes sense? Everything was a personal front. It wasn't them fighting for autonomy. It was them disrespecting me all the time, right? And, and this is true. When someone comes against you and somebody, like, say, say if I do something and my wife opposes me, she's like, why'd you do that? You shouldn't. And she opposes me. Well, I have to stop and ask the question, am I being opposed rightfully? <laughs> yes, I made a mistake. That I shouldn't have. And, and maybe there's something I need to correct. But you have to assess the situation. Like, what is the source of the opposition, right? Uh, what's, what's behind this? And that's exactly what Peter and John are going to do. So here's, here's, what they're gonna, here's what Peter and John realize. This is not personal. This isn't the leaders don't like us because we're fishermen. This is an issue between the leaders and Jesus. This is a spiritual opposition. Here's what they say. Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? They're like... Hey, are we on trial for doing something good? That's a good question. Like, what is this real? That's the question they're asking. What is this really about? And they point to the answer right here in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
He's like, this is really about Jesus. And if you want to know how this man is standing here well, it's because Jesus is at work. You know that Jesus that you thought was a heretic that you killed? He was actually your Messiah. God raised him from the dead, and that's why this man is standing in front of you. They are confronting them with the truth, and I have to stop for just a moment here. Do you know that every single person listening to me today has a worldview? And a worldview is simply your lens for viewing the world. If you're an atheist, then you'll have a worldview that has no God in it. If you're a Christian, you'll have a worldview with Christ at the center. That's the idea. If you have a worldview, if you have a liberal worldview, then you'll view it through the lens of liberal politics. If you have a conservative worldview, you'll look at it through the lens of conservative politics. And here's what's so crazy about this, is that we all have a worldview. You have to have some assumptions that are built in in order to understand the world. And so we're constantly looking at the world through our worldview. And what happens is when we're confronted with something that doesn't match our worldview, we have two options. Option number one, resist it, throw it out, that's junk. Option number two, we have to begin to deconstruct our worldview to accept this new truth and rebuild a new, modified, better version. That makes sense? And so what's happening here is Peter is confronting these religious leaders with their worldview. You believe certain things about God, about the Messiah, about, uh, about God's redemption and salvation. You believe all these things that you've built your life on, and Jesus contradicts all of them. And if you accept Jesus, you're going to have to deconstruct everything you believe about God, about the temple, about the scriptures, and look at it all through a new lens. It's called repentance and sanctification. You're going to have to be changed. And they're unwilling to do that. That's the idea. They're unwilling to do that. Peter then turns uh, to uh, Psalm 118, I believe it is. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. But there's a really interesting story to this. Um, there was a Jewish tradition among the elders in Jesus' days. And this is really cool. While the Temple of Solomon was being built, uh, the idea was that uh, all the stones, the massive stones that were quarried and cut, and they were all done off-site. There wasn't even the sound of a chisel on the site of the temple. So they would perfectly build and cut all the stones, and they would transport them to the temple site and lay them, and they had blueprints and architecture and all that. So what happened is, they're working on the temple and this weirdly shaped stone shows up on the scene. And they go, we don't know what to do with that. They couldn't figure out where it went. So they set it aside and they keep building. Then the stone's in the way, so they roll it down the hill into the trash heap. They just kind of chuck it aside down the hill and they keep building. And then when it comes time for the, 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 the corner and the capstone for the wall, they're, they're sending to the quarry going, where's the final stone? And they're like, we sent it to you a long time ago. And they begin searching for it everywhere. Only to discover that this crucial stone had been cast aside. And Jesus is, or sorry, Peter is saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is that stone from that story. You, like your forefathers, rejected the one that was sent to you and did not recognize him. Do you see, do you see what he's doing here? And this is confronting their worldview. It's infuriating them. And he finishes by saying this, and there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men in which we must be saved. Now, Let's keep moving. It says this. Uh, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, fishermen. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I just think that's so cool. There was something about the way these men carried themselves and spoke that reflected uh, the person and work uh, of Jesus. Uh, I, I wrote this. I wrote this down. Uh, there's a difference between knowing the Bible and knowing the God of the Bible. Because the men they were talking to knew all the Bible verses, knew the history of Israel. 
But Peter's speaking to it with authority. This is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that you have rejected. Verse 14, it says, But seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. If you're taking notes, um, write this down. The strongest proof of the power of Jesus is a transformed life. You may not be able to convince your family, your friends, that Jesus exists. But they can witness a transformed life. Sometimes people come to me like, I really, really want my kids to believe in Jesus. And I say, just love Jesus and follow him yourself. Because there will be no greater proof that Jesus is alive and at work than your life being transformed. Your heart being transformed. There's no greater proof. You can go to your friends and they'll be like, I don't believe all that stuff. But as they witness your life changing. And can I tell you something? When people want to accept Jesus and they want to add Jesus to their existing worldview, it doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus isn't isn't some dressing stone on the top. He wants to be the cornerstone of your life, which means that if you accept Jesus, you must deconstruct everything. The way you think about money, time, relationships, everything begins to change because you're now putting Christ at the center. Your worldview must, must change. So, let's keep going. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, they say, in order that we may spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more in any other name. And so they called them together, they brought them back in, and they charged them, Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, saying, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is my final point, and we're going to wrap it up, okay? Obey God and do right in spite of opposition. I think it's really important. Uh, Peter and John are not, um, they're not rude, they're not disrespectful. They're just like, hey, we've got to decide who to obey, and if it's between you and God, we're picking God. And that's what you and I need to do in the face of opposition, no matter what it is. Obey God, do what's right. And you know what things we discover in Scripture is that God defends us when we honor Him and do what is right. So uh, here's the final couple of verses. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 40 years old. That's incredible. So a couple, uh, couple things as we kind of recap. Um, <laughs> What's going to happen next is the, um, the disciples are going to gather together all the Christians. They're released. And we'll learn about this next week. They're going to gather all the Christians. And they're, they're not going to start a, a political coup. They're not going to pick it. They're not going to complain about the elders and the scribes. They're going to pray. They're going to ask God to work. And they're going to ask God for boldness. And God is going to move and do something incredible uh, through them. So, when we face opposition, and we will, we will face opposition. When we face opposition, we must be reminded that God is at work. We must depend on God. We must seek to understand the source of it and obey God and do right no matter what. Hey, that's it from us. Thank you so much for joining. Please stay connected with us. Be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's Pathway Church PTBO. Hey, God is at work in this world, and we feel so blessed that we get to be a part of what he is doing. Have a great day wherever you're at, and we hope to see you soon.